Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Louise Finch about her YA novel, The Eternal Return of Clara Hart. Louise has worked for over a decade in the non-profit sector on issues including women's rights and health. She grew up in a small town in the Midlands and graduated from Lancaster University with a degree in art history before moving to the southeast. She now lives with her partner and two dogs on the Hampshire-Surrey border. This is the last episode of season one of the podcast before a new season starts next week and what a book to end it on. Louise's novel is a really great book, tackling tough subject matter. We talk about writing toxic masculinity and rape culture for teens, looking after yourself when writing about difficult subjects and using a really fun time loop structure. But first, here's Louise with an excerpt from The Eternal Return of Clara Hart. Her again, him again, me again, all of this again. Except now I'm awake for everything. Now I can see what I missed. Anthony leaves and goes upstairs. Clara sways on her own. I stand up, watch her. But Anthony's back in no time. He pops out of view for a moment and then there's two drinks in his hand and one's for Clara. I sit back down. Clara giggles and weaves on the makeshift dance floor, head bowed. She drops low and stays, peep of black lace to the wood floor. Anthony hauls her up. She pushes him playfully and falls backwards into B, who mouths, desperate much? It all happens again, just like it must have before. But that wasn't real, and now this isn't either. She's not going to die. Anthony pulls her from the room, stoops to pick her back off the floor. She goes with him, all floppy and smiling. They go upstairs. I stand, stare out of the lounge doors at the base of the stairs and wait, jostled by the crowd for I don't know how long until a pathetic tangle of limbs appears, crawling upwards. Worm, I shout. Don't go up there. Come down. Sit. Smoke. I point at the sofa. He goes, collapses sideways and curls his knees to his chest. Worm was upstairs last time. Him and Anthony and Clara all go upstairs. She falls back down. She runs. She dies. But no, none of that's right. I watched and she was dancing, happy. She went upstairs giggling. She won't run, she won't fall. Besides, all of this is some messed up hallucination of my grief-fried imagination. But the last version of this day carries on churning in my memory. Headlights, broken glass, a body on the road, sirens. I can't watch it happen again. 
I step into the hall, grab my phone and dial. The last thing I say is, come quickly. Hi Louise, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here today to discuss your debut novel, The Eternal Return of Clara Hart. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So can you start by telling us what The Eternal Return of Clara Hart is about? Sure. Uh, So The Eternal Return of Clara Hart is a contemporary young adult novel uh, about a boy called Spence who finds himself repeatedly reliving one tragic Friday. It's the worst day of his whole year, the anniversary of his mum's death, and he ends up reluctantly attending a house party where he sees his classmate, Clara Hart, die in an accident. But when he wakes up the next day, it's the same day, Clara is alive again, and Spence realises he's got a chance to save her. But as he repeatedly tries and fails to do that, he realises it's not going to be as easy as he thought. He has to kind of try and think a bit more deeply and work out what that girl has to do with his life, his friends and the choices that he's made. And perhaps confront the idea that even though he's trying to save her, he's not quite the hero that he thought he was. Um, And it's a book about grief, toxic masculinity and rape culture, but also hopefully quite a hopeful book in some ways about kind of opening up, learning from mistakes and doing better. One thing I really loved about your novel was the the kind of structural element of this almost Groundhog Day, reliving the same day over and over. I love books that kind of play with time and stuff like that. Um, and I thought that the way you used it for this particular story was just so fresh and like clever. And I wondered whether the idea of the structure came to you before the story or was it the kind of story you wanted to tell that came first? It was definitely the structure. I'd actually written two novels before this and the one that I was writing just prior was also kind of a time loop novel, um, but it was a very different book. Uh, but obviously that was something that I was already interested in and I'd kind of liked the structural challenge of it. Um, and I've always been kind of fascinated by the idea of um, second chances and the kind of time loop concept also raises that question of uh, if I kind of change one little thing, could that change everything? And while I was writing that previous novel, uh, something kind of happened in my personal life, which kind of made me get quite angry about the scale of male violence in against women in society which is something I felt for the best part of two decades but in that moment I was particularly angry and had kind of nowhere to put that so I decided I want to write a novel about that instead and that theme kind of layered over what I had been writing before so even though I had to start again from scratch it kind of melded together and um, fell into place pretty perfectly actually I sort of immediately saw the perspective that I wanted to tackle that theme from Um, and what you get with time loop stories is the ability of the main character to make mistakes in such a way that they feel the consequences but other characters don't necessarily have to live with them for very long which is very important to this story so I always feel very lucky about the way that it came together because it it wasn't actually me being particularly clever so much as a collision of different ideas that I was interested in that wouldn't necessarily seem to fit together until they kind of did. Yeah, it was a kind of happy accident then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, it works so well, and I I want to be kind of slightly careful about spoilers, but we will talk about the kind of themes in this novel because obviously um, male violence and 
misogyny and toxic masculinity play big roles um, between the kind of male characters in the story. And Spence, we do see him go on a real journey in this story, but particularly at the beginning, he's someone who really struggles to express his feelings and his relationship with his friends highlights a particular kind of behaviour towards women. You've mentioned that obviously it was a personal thing for you that was particularly kind of rose that topic to the fore. Why was it that you kind of wanted to tackle this? And why was it you wanted to tackle it in a young adult novel? Because obviously that's a challenge in itself to make it accessible for young people too. Yeah, definitely. Um, But that's kind of, I guess, the age at which it's sort of started impacting my life. So it's kind of been from then until right now, like literally... um, a couple of weeks ago, two men harassed me in the street when I was on my way to a book club to talk to teenagers about this book. And I guess as well, I just see such little progress. So I work in a youth organisation and I know that young women in schools are still experiencing harassment and abuse from boys their own age. So I really kind of set out to explore, well, I set out to explore a few things, but one of them was kind of how do we break this cycle? if you like. And while that's obviously a very big question that I can't answer, the thing that you can do with fiction is reduce that question to, you know, thinking about it at the level of just one boy trying to change the events of just one night. And the reason that I wanted to tell it from that boy's point of view, um, one of them was that I wanted to look at, as you say, the kind of different effects of toxic masculinity on boys as well, because it seems very linked to me how boys are socialized to suppress their emotions and to kind of not be um, vulnerable and how that can link to how they see other people as well so Spence at the start is struggling a lot not just with his own feelings but also with connecting to other people at a deeper level so he's ended up with this quite kind of surface level view of other people that makes him quite lonely um, and also in influences his understanding of his own impact on the lives of the girls around him Um, so the journey that he goes on is about being more self-reflective more aware of other people kind of opening up and accepting help yeah because I I think in the first version of that particular Friday that he then repeats over and over obviously it's the anniversary of his mum's death and he goes to school and does not mention that to his friends and they seem to have forgotten and he just experiences the day without telling anyone like this is why I'm in such a terrible mood and then it obviously impacts his, the relationship with his dad but then gradually as the as this kind of the Fridays repeat we do see him bring it up and broach that topic and also then confide in other characters as well yeah absolutely because he's the kind of lone Um, point of view and he's the only character who kind of gets to keep the memories of each day it was really important to me that he does go on like a quite significant journey of personal Mm. growth and I thought that was really important to explore the benefit to him of of his own personal change as well as obviously benefiting the lives of the people around him. So let's talk about Spence then and because the the novel's from his point of view and you have written from his perspective and it's such a distinctive voice obviously being a teenage lad and you've got to write in in a kind of authentic way what was that like because I can imagine that was a bit of a challenge oh thank you uh it actually Spence kind of actually arrived in my head pretty well formed um once I kind of knew who he was and the experiences that had shaped him 
Um, and the, I think the opening scene helped a lot because that has been the same since I started writing it. Um, and as you just said, we kind of meet Spence at a very low point where he's kind of his, he's very closed up and he's kind of his rudest, most grumpy self at that point. So I think that helped kind of get under his skin because his voice was very clear in that moment. Mm. Um, and knowing that he's kind of going through such a lot that he doesn't want to talk about and almost, as you say, doesn't even want, want to think about, um, really kind of crystallised how his voice was going to appear on the page because I, I think that reflects that kind of who he is quite well. And mm. he's kind of, he's quite unreliable. He's in a lot of denial about various things, um, including what he thinks about Clara. So that was kind of like a fun challenge to write. But I did also have to be quite strict with myself when I was writing his Point of view because he is quite um unobservant and unromantic as well so there were a few times where you know I'd write something and I'd get carried away and I, I'd write something that I loved and then I think no that's that's far too poetic for Spence and <laughs> I'd, I'd cut that or I'd take out references to things that I just didn't think he'd notice like girls outfits I was like no Spence doesn't care about that <laughs> Yeah, but there are some beautiful turns of phrase in this novel as well. So maybe Spence isn't as unpoetic as we we put him down to be. I wanted to also speak about the dialogue because, again, that's something that just feels so authentic. And I feel, well, reading it, I felt like you've got a real ear for it. But I don't know whether it was something that came naturally to you or you had to really work at the dialogue to make it kind of feel like you were eavesdropping on real teenagers. I think it's a mix. I do love writing dialogue. It's probably my favourite thing. And I hear the characters very distinctly in my head when I write them. And um, I'm also one of those people in real life um, that kind of absorbs the accents around them. So I went on a Hindi recently with a friend who uh, has an American accent and we were in the car together for like three hours on the way, um, just sort of chatting nonstop. And then when we arrived, the uh, B&B owner said hi to her and then said hi to me and said, oh, are you American too? And I had to say, oh, no, I'm not. I just caught it off her and trying <laughs> to remember how I actually speak. So I think that probably helps with dialogue. Mm. Um, but it is something that I have to work at in edits too, sort of making sure that the voices don't bleed together and um, making sure it's not too waffly and things like that. Um, I always kind of read my manuscripts aloud, but also then let the word robot read them out loud. And I think if the word robot makes it sound alive, then it's working. Yeah, I've just started using the the kind of read aloud functional word. And I'm surprised by how good it sounds. Like it's not, obviously it's not as good as like an audio book, but mm. it, does, it does help you pick out bits in your manuscript where it kind of lags a bit or your a phrase doesn't quite land how you want it to. Um, so I know a couple of people that have started using it as well. And so I would definitely recommend people check that out if they haven't tried it. I wanted to go back and speak about the structure again, because obviously when you know that the only day or the only time frame you're using is the same day over and over again, and you're revisiting the same kind of locations and similar events, obviously things change slightly. Did you kind of worry about maybe it being repetitive or um, getting a bit kind of tiresome kind of reading the same kind of things and did you have to kind of plan it out quite carefully so that you were tweaking things and changing things and and not just kind of rehashing the same bits over and over again 
yeah it was definitely a worry um I really love time loop stories but I think you see them kind of more commonly on film because when you're watching tv or a film and you're watching the same character do the same thing over and over again you kind of it's easier to tolerate because you can see the nuance of what's changing there and then and it's, it's happening in front of you so I was aware that I didn't have that that um privilege when or that advantage whilst uh, writing. Um, and I was also aware that it could feel like you're losing progress, seeing the day kind of reset again and again, which I thought could be frustrating. So I wanted to make sure that the reader picks up Spencer's story as late in the day as possible, once you've established the version of events. So it doesn't go back to him waking up every time. And I also wanted it to be clear kind of how uh, Spencer's making continual progress in his personal journey so I figured that the advantage that books have over films is that readers kind of can bring their own event their own imagination to the page and fill in the blanks um, so I think kind of once you've done a few repetitions you can pick up the day at almost any point and the reader knows exactly where they are. Mm. There's a kind of fun familiarity to it where you're like well, I know what happens next. And it's kind of like, well, how is Spence going to change things or what's going to be different about this version? And I certainly was like racing through the pages being like, I had got to a certain point in the story where I'd figured out what Spence needed to do or kind of roughly. And every time he didn't do the things that I needed him to do, I was like, come on, just do it. And, you know, <laughs> and it's fun to kind of see it's like that, um, you know, domino effect of him doing one thing and that there's a there's a point where his friend Jay has an incident in the canteen and once he tries to kind of stop it and then ends up uh, causing Jay to break his nose and it's like, it's the, it's the butterfly effect, isn't it? You know, one small thing that then changes the rest of the day and that's, I mean, that's what's so fun about, I, I can see why that kind of structure is like irresistible to writers. I think it's a really hard thing to do, but it, you've done it so well because there is no feeling of, oh, well, I've seen this already, like come on, get on to the next bit because every every version of the Friday is different. And like you said, Spence changes so much throughout the novel that you're kind of, it's it's nice to see because you want him to be a better person by the end of the book as well. Oh, good. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> One of the things that we do see is this building, I guess, relationship between Spence and Clara. But of course, for Spence, he's seen it. He's seen that development between them. He's kind of warmed to her quite a lot and maybe become more honest about his feelings and opened up to her. But she doesn't get to go on that journey because she doesn't get to repeat the Friday. It's kind of all brand new to her. So was that difficult to navigate because you're trying to develop their relationship but you can only really do it on one side so how did that work when you're kind of thinking about that? So at one point um, I did actually have a point of view for Clara and I think that helped a lot even though I eventually cut it I did kind of get to explore for myself how she feels about him and the kind of complicated nature of that um, and they do have a lot of kind of history behind them even though they don't necessarily know each other that well. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of that to kind of build on. But I was always really mindful that I didn't want there to be any sense that Spence was using what he comes to know about Clara to kind of manipulate her or gain an advantage in their interactions. 
because um, I used to really love the film Groundhog Day, but when I watched it again as an adult, because I, I watched a lot of time loop um, things uh, when I was writing this book, I just found it really creepy that that is what the Bill Murray character does to kind of end up with Andy McDowell's, that he kind of uses what he knows about her in one of their days in particular. And I thought, oh no, I don't want that to happen. Mm. Um, so it is kind of more, it is kind of more that their relationship changes based on how Spence presents to her. So at the start, he is putting up all those barriers. He's quite hostile. Um, and then as he starts to see her more clearly, he kind of opens up to her a bit more. He treats her better, um, influences how um, she responds to him because um, I think Clara has a better sense of who he is already. Mm. And without spoilers, I kind of like the point at which the two of them are then left in the story. I think it's quite fair and I hope it feels earned. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a again, not no spoilers, but there's a kind of a, a version of the Friday where we see such development between them and it's almost upsetting to have to reset again. And I'm sure you felt that as a writer to be like, oh, it's a shame to reset, but it's fair for the story and it's right that the ending is the ending and we certainly don't see certain characters get let off the hook in terms of their behavior and I think it I think it's a very satisfying conclusion um even though other characters aren't aware of all the work that Spencer's done to get there we are as readers so we can kind of feel it a bit more when I chatted through the end of the book with the younger readers at the book club the other day they kind of um were saying that they all liked that they could kind of imagine where Spence might go from the end of the book yeah that's nice so I was going to ask you really about the kind of the the subject matter and also writing for a younger audience because you don't really shy away from the kind of darkness of the topics and the seriousness of it it's quite a a grown-up young adult book I'd say um and it does explore quite mature themes so I was wondering kind of how much guidance you received in terms of what to include and what to take out was it kind of did you have a lot of freedom when it came to that or, or were you kind of guided a bit more in terms of being told like what was okay for writing that age group and what was not quite okay there was actually so much freedom nobody at any point told me to take anything out um and I don't know if that's just because Little Island are a kind of a smaller publisher and they um have more kind of independence and they kind of can take those risks or whether they just kind of know that you know this it is a book that sadly reflects the reality that so many young people of the intended age group are living um but I did work with a sensitivity editor and a sensitivity reader and I found that very reassuring and um, because I was really mindful of the responsibility that comes with writing these subjects particularly for a younger audience um and whilst I have kind of some of my own experiences I knew that I couldn't you know um it, I couldn't possibly write something that would chime with everyone's experiences of those those subjects and I definitely felt the need to write with care and to do the best job that I could and to bring other perspectives in so whilst I did a lot of reading and research of my own just having other people look at it too from that kind of informed position was really important um and those reads happened at at a point in the process where there was still a lot of opportunity to make meaningful changes if we needed to. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's one of those books where I think if you'd been told to kind of pull back a little bit, it would have maybe felt a bit kind of sanitized. And I think the honesty is what makes it so strong because it is real. I mean, if you... I don't know any teenagers, but I imagine if you went to kind of any high school, you would read or see behavior or language like is used in the book. Um, so I think it would, you know, you'd end up writing kind of some version of Grange Hill, I think, if you started, uh, you know, taking out certain elements of the plot or the dialogue. So it felt very authentic to me. And I think um, that maybe, like you say, maybe that is a, a reason why because you're with an independent smaller press they do have that freedom to be a bit braver in terms of the stories that they tell so that's that's really interesting because obviously this is quite a tough book in terms of what the subjects it deals with whether you have to kind of take a step back at points and look after yourself in terms of um stepping away from the kind of upsetting parts and the painful things that maybe it brought up. So how did you go about kind of looking after yourself during the writing process? I'm actually not sure that I did. I didn't do that very well, I don't think. I got very kind of caught up in why I was writing it um, and what I was writing and who I was writing it for. 
and I didn't really reflect until much later on um, what the kind of personal impact of it had been. Um, actually, a friend of mine read a proof copy, um, so that's obviously quite late in the process. Um, and she called me immediately after finishing it and said very nice things and kind of gave me her review. And then just before she went, she said something like, you know, wow, this must have been a very hard thing to write and to live with for such a long time, because at that point it had been well, it's, it's been it's been years, obviously, in the making. And I mumbled something about it being okay. And then we put the phone down and then I had a big cry about it um, because it suddenly hit me that it had been very hard and I hadn't really stopped to think about it because it's it was such a, you know, a rollercoaster writing it and then trying to get it published and then that being successful. But since then, I have been sort of talking a lot more openly with people in my own life about my experiences. And I think it has been really good for me to revisit and to kind of open up again. Um, particularly with the book being out in the world um, because that was also more difficult than I thought it would be mm-hmm. and I have kind of learned my lesson because I do tend to want to write about things that are painful and that have an element of truth uh, or sort of a nugget of personal um, experience in them I am trying to be uh, more mindful of the impact it's having along the way and sort of take breaks and talk about it and do all that stuff so in your acknowledgements, you mention a lot of organisations that have helped you on your way to getting published. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your kind of journey towards publication and what organisations or courses or any kind of support you've had along the way. And then can you tell us how you got your agent and book deal? So it's a big, basically the, the story from your whole journey of becoming a writer. Okay. Um, well, it, it feels like a very short journey in some ways, but this is probably going to be quite a long answer. Because <laughs> um, I only started writing as an adult um, in 2018. I had written a lot as kind of a young child and a young teenager. Um, but yeah, I hadn't sort of picked up my pen again until January 2018 as part of a sort of New Year's resolution. But then I made up for lost time by writing three full drafts of novels in that year. Um, And the last of which, yeah, I know, it was a bit, a bit of a commitment. Um, But, you know, I thought you have to go for it when you decide to do something. Um, And the last one of those drafts was The Eternal Return of Clara Hart. Um, And in the middle of that year, I got accepted onto the Curtis Brown six-month course um, that I think was a great thing to do at that particular time. Um, And it was kind of during that course that I threw away that second novel and started work on this one. Um, And the tutor, Lisa O'Donnell, was like the perfect person for that particular time in my writing journey, because not only was she the one who said, go for it, but she was also, she's an incredible writer, but also a very honest and very direct teacher. Um, sort of no nonsense no sugarcoating the truth when your writing is horrible Um, and that is just what I needed to kind of move me along quite quickly I think so I wrote that first draft in about a month right at the end of the year that was awful uh, the first draft and I spent like a year working on it almost uh, on my own because I didn't really know that there was a writing community I didn't know what beta readers were or critique partners I didn't know that anybody would look at my book for free (laughs) Um, so I took some other writing courses during that year and just kind of tried to shape it into a book really but then in 2020 found where all the other writers were they were on Twitter of course and um, this organization called Write Mentor who work um, with children's writers and YA writers 
and their courses are really really fantastic really kind of affordable and accessible um, and helpful um, and they also ran a novel competition so by that point I had kind of finished my manuscript and I was starting to query agents um, with the thought in the back of my head that there was no chance that I would get one because it was my very first novel and nobody else had really looked at it very much and I thought well maybe I'll learn about the process I'll get a sense of the different agents I'll enter it into this competition just because at that time they gave kind of reader feedback as well to everybody including from young people so I thought well that would be priceless so well worth a go and then I ended up being shortlisted for that award which was incredible it was the kind of first time that I felt that maybe the book was good enough and that maybe it did have some legs and that maybe it wasn't just all in my head and that also led to me receiving some free mentoring from a couple of really generous and um, more experienced writers um, and while that was happening the querying that I'd been doing came good and my agent actually found me through the slush pile just through the normal querying process um, she asked for my full, then read it over the weekend, as you always want them to, and offered me representation. Uh, and obviously I said yes. And then Becky, my agent, she's a really incredible editor as well. So she made some suggestions to sort of reshape the book a little bit. And then we went out on sub. This was in sort of September 2020. So the height of the pandemic and possibly not a great time to be querying a book that is a bit dark and um, challenging. So that was a very long drawn out process, um, but obviously it had a lovely ending to it. And um, I feel very lucky to have ended up where I did with Little Island because they publish really interesting books. They've been so supportive of, of this book and of me as an author, and it's just, it's worked out brilliantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a, although like you said, it, it was a short kind of journey in a sense, um, you must have feel, you must feel like you've kind of always had that dream to write it as a New Year's resolution. It must have always been something deep down you, you really wanted to do. Yeah, it definitely was. It had been on my mind for years. Um, not this novel specifically, obviously, but just to write a novel, I thought that would be amazing because I've always been a massive, massive reader and I've always thought that, that people that write books are incredible. Mm. Um, so I feel was very it, lucky to be one of them. Was it always young adult you wanted to write or had you ever kind of thought you might write for younger children or adults? How, how did you come to write YA? I think it was just a genre that I've been really influenced by in my life. So I remember very vividly the books that I loved when I was a teenager and um and I had started to read a bit of young adult as a as an adult as well and I just thought that the that they were really interesting it, the, it's a genre where you find really interesting writing obviously you do everywhere but um within these kind of um books that are very entertaining and quite short but they're still like really compelling and dealing with really important issues. I just thought that was a really interesting genre to write in. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's definitely where I wanted to be. Although I have kind of dabbled a little bit with writing for adults as well, but that's not going quite as well. So <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about that. <laughs> I feel like YA in some ways is ahead of the game because you often find that 
subjects that don't often get a look in in adult fiction start in YA and particularly like in terms of like diversity and diversity of story you find it in YA so I can see why it's an exciting kind of prospect to, to write for young adults certainly um I saw you mention elsewhere that you the writing process for you has been tough and you also despite the fact that you wrote the first draft very quickly uh the process itself has been quite slow so what is a kind of good writing day for you then what is the kind of you know you get to 7 p.m and you think okay that was a good writing day what does that look like for you I mean I can write very fast when I get going and bash out like 5,000 words in a day I think that's probably oh don't tell me that though (laughs) they're not good ones though well sometimes they are but like in an ideal scenario um I sort of always have this feeling of whether the words are the right ones as they're kind of coming out. And then, so a good writing day is one where I know that I've written something that I'm going to keep. Um, Because whilst I can write very fast, it usually results in this first draft that's just a horrible mess. Like I I know I said that I kept the first scene pretty much the same in Eternal Return, but pretty much everything else changed a lot um, (laughs) through the process because having to reshape something that you've written so fast into a coherent novel I just find it that bit an incredibly long slow difficult process because I think I just come to the ideas that I have with so many thoughts all at once about the theme and then I have to kind of stop myself going out on all these endless tangents and decide which are the most important elements to keep so if you have a particular writing routine, are you someone that likes to get up at 6am and write for an hour? What what do you what do you see as kind of, do you have a routine or is it kind of a bit more you write when you've got a spare 10 minutes? What What's your kind of writing day look like? Uh, I do have, I've been very lucky over the last couple of, couple of years to have two dedicated days to writing in my weekday. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to keep those forever, unfortunately, but um, at the moment I do. And I also write in the uh, evenings on the days where I have other work and usually in the weekends as well. So I do put a lot of time into it, into sitting and looking at my computer at least. (laughs) Um, But sometimes as well, I find the best, sometimes the best little bits of writing come out when you're not expecting them. So I've written scenes that I absolutely love just to myself on my phone whilst I'm waiting somewhere and it just kind of pops into my head so mm. yeah I don't think I do have a particularly great routine. And what is it that you find kind of most difficult about writing is there a particular thing that you think is your your weak spot or the thing that you dread? I find it all really hard I know I've said that I like love writing dialogue and I you know um enjoy writing my characters but it just all still feels really difficult to me um I'm absolutely terrible at planning so I wish I wish that I could plan at any level so I keep trying every single novel that I've written and although I've been working on something consistently since I finished Eternal Return I've also tried to start other things during that time and every single time I start a novel I think right I'm going to plan this and I sit down with my save the cat and you know a spreadsheet with a breakdown of where things need to be and I think right scenes imagine them Louise and I try 
I try to plot and then I just start writing and it very quickly bears no resemblance at all to the plotting that I've done and it just goes off on its own direction and then it takes forever to edit it into <laughs> another. So I'm going to ask you now if you had the same ability as Spence to relive or do over a day in your publishing journey what would you choose? Is there anything that you think you kind of wish you had the the foresight of knowing? I always think it would be a super dangerous ability for me to have because I chronically overthink everything. I'm quite an anxious, perfectionist kind of person and I just think I'd get stuck in that day forever because I'd never be able to let it go. Um, but I would, in some ways, like to be able to go back to publication day um, because I, it was a nice day in that I met my agent for the very first time. She took me out for lunch. She's a very calm presence and just a lovely person to hang out with. So it was a nice day, but I was um, very, very nervous still. And I just wish that I could go back to that day knowing that everything was all right, because publishing has definitely been a very up and down process. And I know that so many people say that. And I've listened to podcasts and I've listened to authors talk about their publishing journeys and every single one of them says that so I should have known that it would be like this but there's a very big difference between knowing and experiencing it mm. because it was far um, more emotional than I had ever imagined it could be. Would you go back to kind of your former self and just say look it's going to be all right just kind of ride it through? Yeah I'd have been like do you know what Louise you should actually have a drink and get a cake and actually celebrate as opposed to just sitting in your house going oh no what am I gonna do yeah I think it's hard and I think we we all have a tendency of always looking ahead and thinking what's the next thing that we need to do or the next thing that's possibly going to happen that we wish would happen rather than actually enjoy the moment and enjoy the kind of small successes and um I've said this before that you know the fact even the fact of having an agent you know if you think back to five years ago ten years ago whatever you would have been thrilled to have an agent and yet now it just feels like not nothing but it just feels like well I've got an agent now so that's done and you don't actually appreciate how great that is and I think there's so many points along the journey where I mean even the fact you know when you first got your proofs um your very neon proofs I mean what a great moment but a couple of months down the line you forget that feeling and I think it's so easy to kind of lose sight of all the the great bits along the way so if there's anyone that's kind of about to do this or is thinking about hopefully becoming published make sure you celebrate every little every little moment have that drink have that cake yeah definitely <laughs> so finally are you able to tell us if you're working on anything new at the moment? Um, I am writing another young adult novel. Um, it's not under contract, so I don't know whether it will ever see the light of day um, or indeed if I'll ever finish it because of the process that I go through. Um, <laughs> but it's it's um, very different to Eternal Return in a lot of ways, but uh, it kind of still has a fantastical element that aims to reveal something about real world issues. Um, and it's kind of about self-esteem and having a challenging relationship with your own visibility in the world. 
Well, that sounds great. I cannot wait to read it. I love the kind of speculative or fantastical twist on a contemporary story. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Louise. Oh, no, thank you. It's been so nice to chat. That was Louise Finch talking about her YA novel, The Eternal Return of Clara Hart, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. This was the last episode of season one of Confessions of a Debut Novelist. Season two starts weekly from Thursday with really exciting debut novelists of 2023. I've got so many great guests coming up and I cannot wait to share these with you. Thank you for all your support for the first season and I hope you enjoy the episodes to come. Thank you so much for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.